If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We'll read through the whole chapter this morning. That's what we're going to be focusing on. Thanks. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, and the wind should, uh, and that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe tribe of uh, uh, Nephthalim were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Zebulon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed twelve thousand. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be unto our God for ever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, these are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time. I ask now that you would, uh, that your, your name would be glorified as we look in, into your word. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be ready to receive your word, that we might glorify you through it. We thank you once again for such a precious thing that we hold in our hands and I pray that we would never take it for granted. Lord, uh, use me, I pray, and hide me behind your cross as I attempt to share your word with my brothers and sisters here this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. <clears throat> Who likes a good murder mystery? They've become very popular these days. There are so many uh, police and, and, and criminal investigation things like CSI and those sort of things. And to be honest with you, I don't really watch any of them. I know some people do. They absolutely love it because they, they try to work out who the, you know, who the person is that did it. Uh, the only thing I remember about criminal investigations was Columbo as I was uh, growing up. <laughs> Columbo. You can't beat Columbo. Even now, you can't beat Columbo. I remember one thing about Columbo as I was growing up that I, I'd be watching it with mum and dad. Normally, uh, we'd, be, we'd have a special our little TV room and we'd be sitting there and watching, watching these episodes and... I remember you'd have a few suspects, right? And, and Columbo was there with his cigar. And you'd normally, you'd spot out which one it was normally. And you'd have a good idea it was this particular person because he was around that sort of area and he's got the motive, I think. And, and plus, look, he's got the face of a criminal or a murderer. And 99 out of 100 times, you'd be wrong. 
it'd be someone who you totally missed. You thought, you know, that person, it couldn't have been them, they're too nice, or they're too... But instead, you were totally put off track because you would miss some critical piece of information. And you knew half the time because you'd got it wrong the week before and the week before and the week before that. And you'd know, and you'd watch Columbo and you'd know, he knows something that I don't. And sure enough, he'd work it out by the end of the show and you'd, and you'd be led up the garden path somewhere else. Time and time again. So I'm not very good at criminal investigations. <clears throat> this passage has led more cults and more people up the garden path and in the wrong direction probably than any, any other uh, passage of scripture. You will find as many opinions about who these 144,000 people are here. Um, you'll find as many opinions and as many ideas about those, these people as there are cults and, and different denominations. And I think and I believe that the problem with most of them is they've missed the critical piece of information. And we're going to start off with that first. As I mentioned to you last week, when the rapture happens, God's prophetic program with Israel starts again. The church is out of the way, and God's program with, with Israel starts up again, and as sure as it finished up thousands of years before, it starts up again and God continues with his program. So when we read Revelation, the key that we need to keep in mind is that Israel is that special thing you need to keep at the forefront of your thinking. It's Israel that God is dealing with. It's Israel that's at the focus of the book of Revelation, not the church. The church is out of the way. The church has been taken out. We're already in heaven. God's now dealing with Israel and the last seven years. So the Gentiles are no longer the focus of God's program, although the Gentiles are included in that program, but God's program is focused on the Jews. Now today we're going to look at this specific chapter here whose focus is really on the existence of a group of men who obviously are very special to God because not only are they mentioned in this chapter... But they're also mentioned in chapter 14. They're repeated again. And there's another, a few more references to them as well in the book of Revelation. So we're going to look at this chapter today. We're going to try and dissect it a little bit and get an idea about who these, uh, these people are. But to put our minds right, to put us in the right frame of mind, I want us to go back to Matthew chapter 24 again just to see how Jesus explained this end times to his disciples, who were Jews, by the way, when they asked him about what the end of the world would be like. Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 3. Start from verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us. When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Okay, so we're talking about specifically the end of the world here, when, the, when Jesus will return. So, okay, so that's the specific question. Verse 4 says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Okay. Now, we hear today wars and rumours of wars and there are things going on and Jesus is saying, don't, be, don't let your heart be troubled too much at the moment. These things all have to take place. He knew that there was, there was going to be a, a lengthy uh, span of time before the end. Now, verse 7 says, For nation shall rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Okay. Now, do you remember the seven seals that we spoke about last week? Okay. The seven seals, I said to you, gives us pretty much a panoramic view of the seven years 
how it starts off with the Antichrist and how it builds then towards the end to this crescendo at the end when God's pouring out all his wrath upon the world. And now the Antichrist responds to that as well. The more wrath, the shorter his time, the more he becomes violent, the more he persecutes believers, and the more desperate he becomes. So the seven years, or the seven seals, gives us a panoramic view of that time. It gives us the way the things unfold throughout the tribulation period. Okay, While the trumpets and vials then give us a very specific detail about how God pours out his wrath towards the very end. Now the four seals, who remembers the four seals? The first seal was the white horse. Okay, and the white horse represented pretty much the Antichrist and he's, he's coming into this world. The second was a red horse. The red horse meant war. It meant that he was going to uh, use the instrument of war to obtain or, or secure his power. Then you had the third seal, which was a black horse, and he had a pair of balances in his hand and he said that food was going to be scarce. So as a result of war, and this is a natural progression which happens most times, you'll find a shortage, okay? And people are going to struggle with that. And then uh, the fourth one was a pale horse, and uh, death and hell were the ones who were, who were following along. Uh, it meant that many people were going to die, and it says that they were going to die, uh, a, a fourth of the earth was going to die, um, to be killed with the sword, with hunger, with death, and with beasts. Now, look at Matthew 24, verse 9. Now, we've, got, we've gone through this beginning of sorrows here. We've gone through these things where the Antichrist has come in, the beginning of sorrows is taking place. Verse 9 says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now, there's an interesting uh, 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 part of this verse, and it says, Ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. I don't know, as Christians, we're not hated by all nations. In fact, we, we Christians are the majority in many nations in this world. This specific group are going to be hated by every nation at this specific time. So after they go through these, this beginning of sorrows, after they go through these, these uh, first three or four um, seals, they are going to be... The, Jesus then says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Verse 10 then says... And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Now, what has that got to do with anything? Well, if you remember, the beast, or the Antichrist, institutes a, a, a mark on people's heads. And if you didn't have that mark, you couldn't do what? You can't buy or sell. That puts people in a very precarious position, doesn't it? If you ain't got a mark on your hand or on your forehead that you had pretty much allegiance to the Antichrist, then you were an outsider. You weren't part of the program. And you'd, you'd be, it'd be very visible that you weren't part of the program because you didn't have that mark. And it says in verse 10, you, And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another. They're going to be dobbing each other in. As the pressure on people grows, as the pressure on people grows to conform to the Antichrist program, they are going to be betraying each other, betraying people who maybe they love to save themselves. Do you remember the fifth seal? Revelation 6, 9, don't turn with me, that's fine. 
when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. After the fourth seal, the Antichrist, or at the fourth seal also, the Antichrist is on the attack. He's looking to destroy his opposition and to destroy the saints of God. He will go about to try to kill the two witnesses and fail until, a certain, until God allows him to kill the two witnesses. He will try to kill believers. He will use other people to weed them out, to dob them in. He will try to destroy the Jews and the 144,000. I want you to notice something about the fifth seal. What is it? Well, the fifth seal is, is basically prayer. It's the prayer of the, of the saints who had been, had been either beheaded or killed for what they believe. And God's just hold on. Just hold on until your number is fulfilled. God promises he's going to avenge their blood. Straight after the fifth seal, straight after these slain believers ask God for vengeance upon them that are, that are on the earth who are responsible for their murders, we find the sixth seal. And in verse 12 it says, And then there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth. And verse 14 of chapter 6 says, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it was rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, keep your, keep your place in Matthew. Go back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 now. Because Jesus repeats the same thing. And he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Chapter 7 in Revelation gives us we've had the bad news of chapter 6 all the breaking of the seals chapter 7 now gives us the good news of the tribulation the good news the thing to look forward to let's go over this good news in Revelation chapter 7 verse 1 the good news basically is that God has a program and there are going to be faithful men and women, but this, in this case specifically men, who are going to evangelise the world. In the face of all this adversity, in the face of this persecution and tribulation, these men are going to convert millions. Revelation 7.1 says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now what are the four corners of the earth? Does anyone know where, those, where, where that is? No one knows where the exact four corners are? No. 
very simply, the four corners of the, of the earth correspond to the four directions. North, south, east and west. The earth is on a square and we know that. We speak of the four winds of heaven, don't we? Which are north, south, east and west and where they, and where they specifically come from. And this is the way that scripture describes this thing. They were standing on the four corners of the world, which means the four directions. You look in, there were the angels which covered the whole globe. Now I want you to notice that one angel commands the other four angels not to hurt the world, not to hurt the earth until the servants of God had been sealed, until their full number had been sealed on their forehead. Correct? He says, hold off on, on doing that sort of stuff. Now, we don't see any destruction of sea, trees, or earth until the fifth seal in chapter 8. Turn to chapter 8. Sorry, not the fifth seal. What am I saying? Let's, let's, it, it starts in chapter 8 when he starts talking about the destruction of the, uh, of the earth. Chapter 8 says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them uh, were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, golden altar which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand and the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it into the earth and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake and the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound that's when we begin to see the destruction of the earth, the sea and the trees begin to take place. God, it seems, begins to answer these prayers with the beginning of the trumpets. You notice how they said, avenge us on the world? And God said, well, hold on until your, your, your number's sealed. Then God says to the angels, don't start destroying the earth until their numbers are complete, until their numbers are sealed. Then we find in chapter, the beginning of chapter 8 that these uh, prayers that have gone up to God are thrown back down to the earth and the beginning of God's judgment takes place on the earth. This means that by the first trumpet sound all 144,000 have been sealed. Their number is complete. God will not begin to destroy the earth with plagues until they are sealed. Which means, from, from what I understand, from what I gather from this, that they're not... 144,000 just don't show up in, 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 a, in a moment. They're converted. And when they're, as they're converted, their, numbers, their number is completed at a certain time and then God begins to judge the earth. This is reinforced by the fact that the locusts of the fifth trumpet are told to keep away from the, from the men with this seal on their foreheads. God says to the locusts that come up from the abyss, you are, you can hurt any person as long as they don't have that seal on their foreheads. So God will not begin to destroy the earth with plagues until they are all sealed. Well, what does that mean? Turn to uh, chapter 9 verse 1. Let's look at chapter 9. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now verse 4 says, And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, 
neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. God is still holding back judgment from the earth. He's he's holding back the full outpouring of his wrath because of these men. So they can complete their work. These men who were sealed on their on their foreheads. Now the seal, what is it? How, how does it mean? What does it mean that they're sealed? Is it the same thing? Because the Bible talks about the Christian being sealed, does it not? In Ephesians chapter one three, it says, "In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise." We were sealed. Are they sealed? I would say they are as well. I would say they, they are sealed the same way. But there's something, at, there's something else. There's an added dimension to their sealing. It says they will be specifically marked by God on their foreheads. Let's see what type of seal it is. Revelation chapter 14 verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand. What does it say there? Having his father's name written in their foreheads. These men are going to have, are going to have, the seal of God's name on their foreheads. It's going to be visible, and it has to be visible because the locusts have to be able to see that mark to keep away from them. It's a bit like, you know, when, the, when God asked the Israelites when he was pouring the plagues on, uh, on Egypt to mark the front doors with the blood and when the angel of death passed by, he saw the blood and he passed by the house. It's going to be a very similar thing. And it's not the first time we hear about this sort of stuff happening in the Bible. Turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. We find a very similar thing happening. Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 1 says, And he cried, he cried also in mine ears with a loud voice saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen. And look what he had. With a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of God of Israel was gone up from the cherub. Whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. God asked this specific person to mark these people. They were marked men with an ink, with ink. And these men were the ones who cried because of the sin of their people. The seal on the foreheads of these 144,000 will be a visible seal. It will be like the ownership. You know when they brand a cattle? And it's got the... What's it called there? The ranch, the... um, whatever the ranch's symbol or whatever it might be, they're going to be sealed. That seal will be a seal of ownership. When people see those, when other people see those men, they will know that they are owned by God in defiance of the other seal that's happening at the same time. Because in Revelation 13, verse 16, it says, And he causeth, he the beast or the antichrist 
causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. That, and that no man might buy or sell, save he had that mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. The name of the beast. Either way, you're identified. You're in one camp or the other. With these 144,000, they identified, they'll have a very different name on their foreheads to the other people. Or, on, or these other people will have it on their hands as well, or, or alternatively on their hands and foreheads. They will be very easy to distinguish. They will be very noticeable. They're going to stand out like a sore thumb. The Antichrist will have his seal upon people. And I want to remind you as well, anyone who has the seal of the Antichrist, was there a chance for them to go to heaven? None. No chance. No chance. Once you, once you receive the mark of the beast, there is no chance. You are owned. That's it. Finished. And with these men, once they've got God's seal upon their foreheads, that's it. They are God's. They will be marked men on this planet. Not only will they not be able to buy and sell because they don't have the other mark, but they are going to be very noticeable. Let's see who these people are. Let's go to Revelation 7.4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephthalim was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulon was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin was sealed 12,000. That's a a very long description of who's going, to res who's going to be marked here. And as I said to you before, as, as many cults as there are in the world, that's as many interpretations as people have of this specific passage about who these people are. And it seems to me that when it comes to God explaining things in the Bible, sometimes the more he tries to be specific about something, the more people try to symbolise it. Have you noticed that? Now God specifically says here they are going to be of the tri tribes of the children of Israel. Then he goes the next step and he says, you know what? I'm going to tell you exactly which tribes we are going to, we are going to mark and how many of each tribe we are going to mark. But it seems that, that you look and you compare the different uh, theologies that, that a lot of these people have and if they don't have a dispensational view and they try to fit the church into this thing they, they come up with all these convoluted and, 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 and crazy ideas. God specifically saying they are the children of Israel can, I, can anyone put up their hand as to who's part of the children of Israel here? Uh, no children of Israel? Okay which, which tribe? No, obviously there's no tribes here either because no one's got any, any clue about what tribe Not only does God say that these, these men are the children of Israel, he then goes on to make it more obvious about when he describes all the tribes. And he, he describes all the tribes except for Dan, by the way, which is an interesting, uh, interesting point. He then goes on in verse 40, chapter 14 to describe them even further. If you go to uh, chapter 14, verse 3, Chapter 14, verse 3 says, And they sung as it were, this is the 144,000, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. 
and in their mouth was found no gold, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, let me just summarise that. These 144,000 know a song that no one else knows. We don't know it. They are singing a particular song that only they know and no one else outside of them. I want to remind you that there was also the very next verse in chapter, uh, in chapter 7, after it introduces the 144,000, explains, it then says there's a multitude of people. So it distinguishes between a specific number and then multitudes which no man can number. So God is being more and more specific. I don't know how, how, how else you could put this. It says that these are men, and we know they have to be men because they haven't defiled themselves with women. Okay? So they're not women. Which then, how does that put... If, if you want to believe that's the church, which some groups believe, how does that work out? It says they're virgins. It says they always follow the Lamb. They always speak the truth and they, they are without fault. Now, I don't know how many options we've got here, but I don't see any other options apart from it, these, these 144,000 being, uh, being Jewish males that are converted during the tribulation period but men seem to, where there, are, where there are no options, to create some options. It's a bit like, you know, in the, uh, in the book of Genesis, God says, you know, on the first day he created such and such, second day he created such and such, third day he created such and such, and at the end of every day he says, and there was evening, and there was morning, and then the following day. The more detail God puts in just to, just to make sure that people are clear about that these are actual days, the more people then find on how they can turn this thing into millions of years. Now, I don't know how millions of years are able to have an evening and a morning, but it seems the more God is specific, and in this case, he's very specific about who these men are. He can't be more specific. If God wanted to tell us if these were Jews, how else could God have told us other than what he did? So basically, these are, and there's no doubt about it, these are 144,000 Jewish males. And these 144,000 Jewish males that are converted during the seven years of the tribulation are, uh, are converted and marked for a specific reason. They have a specific job to do. And I believe that the very next verse tells us what their job is. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 then says, After this, so after the introduction of these 144,000, after this, I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be unto our God for ever and ever. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? Where did they come from? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, how humble John is here. You know, I don't know. Ask the average preacher these days if he doesn't know anything and, uh, and there's an answer, you've got an answer for everything. So thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation. Now remember which, what the great tribulation is. The great tribulation is the three and a half, the second three and a half years. They came out of that and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. 
They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The world lost about 6 million Jews in the Holocaust. Some people are still disputing that. And they were killed in the most horrific ways. Because some people had, had it in their, in their mind that it was a, a better thing to exterminate them and get them out of the way because they were troublesome and to allow them to live. That pales into insignificance compared to the slaughter that will take place during the Great Tribulation. There will literally be millions of people who will be killed. Not just six. I estimate a lot more. Will be killed for believing in Jesus Christ. Specifically those Jews that turned to Christ during that time will be marked. Not just 144,000, but the rest of them that refuse to take that mark that refuse to be part of Satan's program are for those three and a half years. They're going to be hiding and running. They are going to be in, in all sorts of problems. Who are these multitudes? It seems that during the tribulation, many people will be saved. I've heard some commentators say that there was going to be no one saved during the tribulation. I find that absolutely amazing how someone can say that no one's going to be saved during the tribulation. When that's, that tells you there's going to be a, a multitude that you can't number that are coming out of that tribulation. There will be many people who will be saved and turned to Christ and despite the best efforts of Satan to try and destroy these, to wipe them off, the face of the earth, as well as the 144,000. I want to tell you something. These 144,000 are going to be able to convert these millions of people. You know what their job is going to be? They're going to be the evangelists of this world. And they are going to do such an incredible job in such a short amount of time that the world has never seen that sort of result. As a side note, I want you to notice... The peop what the people are actually waving with the white robe. What have they got in their hands? Palms. Do you remember the last time you heard about palms being waved in the Bible? What was happening? Jesus was riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. You know why they're waving the palms again now? The very same thing. Jesus is about to ride triumphantly into this world and enter Jerusalem. What's the main purpose of these men? It's to preach the gospel as it has never been preached before. These 144,000 are going to be the spiritual Davids, the Samsons, the Elijahs, the ones whom the Spirit comes upon to empower like the Old Testament saints. Imagine 144,000 spirit empowered people preaching at the same time all over the world. They are going to convert millions. Go back to Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, just to emphasise that point. 14, 4 says, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. We've read that already. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever, whithersoever he goeth. So they're going to follow Jesus wherever he leads them, they are going to go. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now look at verse 6. Now, it's specifically, one, it tells us that these men have been commissioned, they've been sent, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And look at verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, look, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. Now, is it the angel that preached the gospel? No. Why would that be mentioned here, straight after the 144,000? And it says, To every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth 
and the sea and the fountains of water. Not only do we know this 144,000 will be given the gospel to preach to every kindred and tongue and they will be responsible for turning millions to the Lord during this time. We even know what their message will be. The message is fear God. Give glory to him for his hour of judgment is come. They're going to say God's judgment is coming on this earth. And worship him that made heaven. Now don't get me wrong, it's the gospel. It's the gospel as we know it. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Man has not shown fear to God. And these 144,000 are going to start with the right foundation again. Fear God. It reminds me of Jesus' words in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, where Jesus says, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him, which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. That's God. Jesus says, don't fear man. Don't fear uh, Satan or the Antichrist or whoever else it might be that can put you to death. Fear the one who can not only put you to death, but then after you've died, can throw you into hell at the same time. And there's only one who has the authority to do that, the one who judges, and that's God. Turn to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, because I believe there's a reference to these 144,000 in, in that 12th chapter. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Michael, the, the, the archangel, will protect the children of Israel. And there shall come a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. At that time thy people shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now look at verse 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. You know, the goal of this 144,000 is to turn many to righteousness and they're going to shine because of of the job that God specifically given them at this specific time during this great tribulation. They've got a, a very important job to do and I believe that these are the ones that the Bible calls the wise ones. Now, is the Antichrist going to be able to overcome them and kill them? Will he kill them all? I don't know. I don't know at this point um, whether the fact that they've got marks on their heads is, gonna, is going to guarantee their death. I don't know. There, there are some verses in the Bible that would seem to indicate that, that God specifically protects these 144,000. We know that they're going to be converted. So God protects them enough for them to complete their job. Whether they survive right to the end some people believe that, that none of them will be killed. Some believe that some will be killed. Some believe that all will be killed. I, I, I'm not going to say it or preach it because I don't know it. What I do know is that they will complete their job, that they will remain faithful even to the end. And I know for a fact what the attitude will be. I know what the attitude is going to be and it's going to be the same as in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. That's going to be their attitude. They're going to put God first. They're going to put the Lord first in everything they do. They're going to love him more than they love their own lives. And whether God protects them supernaturally during that time 
or whether or whether he does partially or fully, I don't know. I know these 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 men are going to be so motivated to glorify God with their lives in that short space of time for those those few years that they are going to put their lives second. Let me finish with this. This is our challenge today. Why does God need to anoint 144,000 Jews to evangelise the world? Because the church isn't there. Remember? There's no 144,000 now. Who's responsible to evangelise this world today? We are. We are, or should be, the spiritual 144,000 of our generation. We should be those ones today who lived as they do, who overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and didn't love our lives to death. We should have the boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus today. Not that we should wait for these 144,000 to come to the tribulation. We need to be the spiritual 144,000 of our generation. We should be the ones who overcome daily by the blood of Jesus. By our testimony. I'm afraid that all too many people who call themselves Christians, who call themselves by the name of the one they profess to belong to and to follow love their own lives too much rather than his. And that death is something to fear. Sometimes we cling so tightly to the things of this world that when there's talk of rapture or death, a little shiver goes up the spine. Because you know there's something wrong. In your heart of hearts, you know there's something wrong. You don't have the confidence to face Jesus. We should be the spiritual heroes of our age. We should be the ones that stand out. We don't need to have a written mark on our, on our foreheads. Our lives should be so exemplary, so different to the people of this world that people should automatically pick up there's something different about that person. He, doesn't go with, he or she doesn't go with the flow. He or she doesn't fit into the program here. And if it causes them to hate us for his sake, so be it. But how much do we compromise day by day? Thinking, oh, it's okay. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. How much do we compromise? We have no excuses today. We, more than anyone else, has no excuse. We boast about our teaching, how great our teaching is in, the, in independent Baptist circles, our faith in the Bible. We say that we know the Bible, that we've been born again. We've shunned false traditions and superstitions of other generations and other, and other groups. We've not been fooled by the cults. We say we understand how the end of the world is going to come about. We attend church. We read our Bibles. We pray. We're involved in different programs. But something missing. If there's one thing I, I want you to take away with you today, it's not that you understand the identity of the 144,000. It's not that you understand how they fit into the book of Revelation. It's not that you understand which tribes they're from and when they arise or how they're sealed. They aren't the, necessarily the important things because knowledge puffs up. If there's anything I want you to take away with you today, it's that you understand what drives them. What is their motivating factor? 
what causes them in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of being chased by the, by the devil himself, what causes them to live in such faith and boldness? What causes them to be so successful in the way they, they were able to reach people? Is it because they know there's only a short time? Is it because they know, I've only got three years, so everything else really doesn't make any, any importance, is it? It doesn't make a difference. Is it because of the short time they understand? Well, we should be living, the Bible says we should be living as if Christ were coming today. But we don't. If there's anything I want you to take away with you, I want you to understand what makes these people tick and then to compare it to what makes you and I tick. What motivates us? We should react to the message today in basically just two ways. Either when we compare our lives to these 144,000, it should challenge us to go even harder. Correct? It should challenge us to be stronger for the Lord. It should challenge us to want to reach out to those people who are dying because there are going to be plenty of people who still die before the tribulation comes. Or it could make us ashamed. We look at our lives and we see how, how backward we actually are. How, how much we lack zeal to speak to, to speak to others around us, to live lives that are exemplary, to live lives in our, in, our, in our actions, our words and our thoughts that glorify God. It should cause us possibly to be ashamed. But then we should not sit in shame. We should automatically then go back to the challenge and say, I want to live for Christ. I want to be like them. So either way, we should come we should walk out of those doors today more challenged. Challenged to live more for Christ, to do more for him, to be more sold out. To put him first. Spend some time this week thinking about what these men have to go through what the tribulation saints have to go through, I know the majority of them will lose their heads for what they believe. I don't think many of us will lose our heads for what we believe. What are we doing with the freedom that we have? With freedom comes great responsibility. You know, when I, when I read the lives of Christians in the past, and I, and I see these great, these great men who have evangelised and gone to other countries and converted, and, and if I get motivated. I want to be more like them. When I read biographies of people and, and, how they, and how they've given their lives to Christ, I get motivated. You know something? We should be reading, we should be reading this specific thing here. No, you're still going to go. We should be reading this chapter, chapter 7, and not be as concerned about all the details and all the things, but rather to be motivated, to be more like them, to be spurred on by their faithfulness. Because even in the face of death, they are going to do their job. They are going to live for Christ. They are going to follow him wherever he takes them, even if it takes them to death. Let's be like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your goodness to us, the grace you give us each and every day to live our lives for you. We thank you also for the mercy that comes from your throne each and every day. They are new every morning. And we need that mercy, Lord. We thank you that you are such a patient God. And sometimes as your children, we become very lazy. Lord, I pray that we would live lives that are more like these 144,000. I pray that we would be motivated to put you first in our lives, not to put you second or third or fourth, but to live lives that, that stand out in this generation. 
to live lives as the evangelists of this world. That's what you've called us to. You've called us to spread the gospel now, not to wait until the tribulation period. Lord, help us to see the urgency, to redeem the time for the, for the days are evil, to understand what responsibility we have in this world. Lord, I pray that you are now glorified as we spend time together, as we, as we uh, look again, Lord, at your, at your word, as we spend some time in fellowship together, Lord, may you be glorified. You deserve it all. Because in the end, you've given so much for us, the undeserving ones, that we can't help but thank you for the rest of eternity. Our lives are yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.